Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter The Access Point a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out The Access Point, airing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central Standard on livingcorporate.tv. What's up, y'all? This is Zach with Living Corporate, and happy Black History Month yet again. I'm very thankful again. I know I've been using this word thankful a lot, but because I am. I'm just in a really reflective mood. Um, fatherhood, Emory turns one next month. And, yo, this year's just been, you know, I know I'm not the only person to say this, but, like, this year's just been a lot. When I look back over this past year, right, you know, about a year ago, the pandemic was really... I don't want to say picking up steam because that just seems so um, minimalistic to the 500,000 folks who have passed uh, because of COVID-19. But, you know, that's where we were. I remember really folks kind of questioning, like, really, what was this? And, you know, you know, questioning the validity of the actual disease and all the other talk tracks that we were hearing at that time. And, and now we look back a year later, you know, after all these different protests, after an election, just a lot has happened. And so. I'm just thankful to be here, right? I'm going to talk a little bit more about my CBS feature um, over the next couple of weeks. And also, I want to shout out uh, Victoria at LinkedIn, who featured me on her newsletter, her LinkedIn newsletter. I'm just very thankful for the LinkedIn senior editing team and just the love that y'all showed, living corporate. Thankful that my words are able to get out there. I'm not going to hold y'all. I was very surprised at uh, what they let get out there in terms of the fact they didn't really edit me much. And I stand by the things that I said. <laughs> But, you know, you you shoot a lot thinking that everything won't go in. But I'm thankful, man. They gave me the green light and I I took the shots. So, um, look, today we're having conversations as we've been having conversations all Black History Month about the reality of systems and how systems create disinclusion, inequity and harm for black and brown people. I think it's really easy to get into the theater of, you know, individual behavior. And I'm not saying individual behavior isn't important because individual behavior, like in mass, informs how systems move. But we have to also talk about structures, right? Like the way that structures are set up to foster inequity, to foster disinclusion, to foster and create harm. And, you know, this whole DEI space, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, y'all, you know, and I, you know, I had some conversation with some friends of mine who are who are looking for diversity, equity, inclusion consulting and, and things of that nature. And they're learning like, man, this is a lot. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors out here. Right. Like there's a lot of it out here. And oh, it's, just, it's, it's hard to find people who really know what they're talking about and, and go beyond like the, the same very surface level talk tracks. But I'm thankful for the guest that we have today, uh, Dr. Lonnie Morris. Uh, Dr. Lonnie Morris 
uh, is a sociologist. He's a consultant. He's a public speaker. He's an educator. He's a professor. And uh, incredible mind, um, background in uh, org psychology, leadership development. Um, and I'm just thankful that we were to have him on because we're talking about really like the psychology of inclusive leadership, how organizations are structured that then create, again, all the things I've already named. And uh, we get into it. So it's kind of depressing. I'm not going to hold you. It was kind of. <laughs> uh, you hear some of the things that he stated and, uh, it, you know, I laughed, but I laughed so I wouldn't cry. Right. Uh, but but here's the thing. We as a people, as a collective can impact change, can create change if we organize. You know, I was just watching, just finished watching uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Beautiful film. You know, there's critiques you have with everything, but beautifully shot, beautifully done. And interesting about the title compared to the actual movement of Fred Hampton is that there is no one Messiah with this space. There is no one person who's going to lead us out of disinclusion, inequity, and injustice, right? Uh, the people, the collective, uh, we have to come together to create pressure and hold systems accountable and hold those who control these systems accountable if we really want to see the change that we're looking for. And frankly, it's that type of work and that mentality that really makes the powers that be uncomfortable. And frankly, it's led to the death of all of our civil rights heroes. When you think, when you look at you look at Black History Month, you look at the people that we, we hail, those folks were assassinated by the state because of their ability to galvanize the common man across a, a bunch of different identities and groups and priorities and intentions and goals. Like they were able to connect all these different types of people. And it's going to take that same spirit and attitude to really see the impact that we're looking for. Now, again, we're going to talk to Dr. Morris here in a bit, but before we do that, we're going to tap in with Tristan. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, let's talk about how to write a good bullet point for your resume. If you've listened to any resume tips from a resume writer or career coach, we often talk about moving from task-based bullet points to more results or value-based bullet points. Oftentimes, you're not given much detail beyond that, and you're left to interpret what that means. Today, we're going to discuss three things I think every good resume bullet point has to help you take your resume from just telling what you did to show what you did through examples. When writing bullet points, I like to think of them as mini-stories. No one likes a story that's boring or has a missing plot, which is often the case with task-based points. I like to make sure each bullet has the action you took, the reason you took it, and the value it provided. Incorporating your action allows you to explain what you did and provides the reader with a sense of your role in the situation. Did you lead a team of six or collaborate on a team of six? Did you establish a process or did you revamp the process? Did you launch a new service or streamline service delivery? Help the recruiter or hiring manager understand how you contributed. Including the reason you took action in your bullet point helps provide the recruiter or hiring manager with a clear picture of the situation you were in and what prompted you to do what you did. Value is one of the most crucial yet often left out parts of your resume bullet point. 
Conveying the value your action provided the organization gives the recruiter or hiring manager a sense of what type of return on investment they may receive if they hire you. Showcase the results you provided, and if you can, make sure to quantify them. While I've given you these three things in a particular order, that doesn't mean they have to show up in that exact order in your sentence. Often, when I write bullet points, I like to lead with the action and immediately follow with value or results to capture the reader. Thanks for tapping in with me today. Don't forget, I'm now taking submissions from you all on career questions, issues, concerns, or advice you think may help others. So make sure to submit yours at bit.ly forward slash tap in Tristan. This tip is brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Group Chat, a bi-weekly web show on the Living Corporate Network that tackles diversity, equity, and inclusion topics your jobs, legal, and HR departments would never let fly. With topics like white supremacy at work, finding out that I'm a Karen, decolonizing DE&I, racial gaslighting at work, and imposter syndrome while black, you may be able to see why, but you may also be able to see why so many folks love it. Between our incredible host and our guests, which range from Fortune 500 executives to academics to activists to entrepreneurs, every other Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard is something special. So make sure you check out the group chat on livingcorporate.tv. Dr. Lonnie Morris, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm great, man. How are you? You know, I'm good, man. Happy New Year. Uh, it's a blessing uh, to uh, to have you here. Uh, I want to shout you out and thank you again for being on the group chat last year. Oh, no problem. I appreciate the invitations. I had uh, a lot of fun, particularly on the group chat. That I, I didn't expect it to be as exhilarating as it was. Yeah, that was a really <laughs> good, good group of folks, and I enjoyed that immensely. Uh, well, it, we, we had a good time having you, and... Um, and I remember like Nubiana afterwards, she's like, yo, that was like, they always like having really good time. They was cracking on each other and everybody was laughing and blah, blah, blah. So, so it was dope. Um, look, like, you know, you're on the show, like I'm, I'm always passionate to talk to folks about, especially black academics who are in this space in this field about just like the concept of inclusive leadership. And, you know, I, I think that it's funny because, you know, I was talking to somebody, talking to a colleague. Um, several months ago about this kind, this idea of culture. And, you know, a lot of folks use culture and they say workplace culture, um, especially white folks. They'll, they say it in my experience, anyway, I'm curious to get your perspective on this is like, they say it like very agnostic to race, right? Like it's like culture of like, Oh, we drink tea on Wednesdays or, Oh, well, um, you know, most people uh, don't speak very loudly, you know, in the office or, you know, we don't, you know, we, we, we typically like to meet standing up or whatever the case is, but it's not necessarily about like the psychology of real workplace culture. And it, and it, again, it sidesteps any dimensions around lived experience or identity. And so like, I'm curious to get like your perspective on that, on culture, like as a concept. And then I'm curious to get like, just your perspective on like inclusive leadership as a concept. All right, so we're gonna start with the big guns, huh? So let's let's start with culture, um, and that that's really interesting because I think that where you have an overall mantra that can exist as an organizational culture, right? Where here's how we do things. We know what the traditions are, and we know how people's rituals and practices and beliefs. 
But I also, not just from research, but also from my experience in workplaces, know that you can have microcultures and climates in particular areas that might be quite different from the larger, greater space, right? They might share sort of the overall organizational values, but they function differently. And you might see that particularly when you have diverse leaders in those spaces. So think of an organization, I think about all the universities where I worked, where you've got president, executive, cabinet, and those things. Then you've got directors or vice presidents who run smaller units, and they might operate a little bit differently in this space. And you might see it because of all the things you talked about, like all that intersectionality that comes into play around how people were raised, what their values are, what their heritage is, what their ethnicity, all those things they bring to a space on how we work, how we work together, how we get along, how we communicate, what we value in the transactions of doing business. And that shows up differently in there. I remember just from before an academic, before becoming an academic, I was an administrator for many, many years. And even though I grew up in, as I grew up in the enrollment space, so managing admissions and financial aid and all those things with how to get people into college and to get them to pay the most money for college, right? I always remember talking to younger professionals who were coming up who wanted to do be directors of admissions, directors of these offices, and would always say to them, I'm a much better manager of people than I am an enrollment manager because I get those things. Those things are important to me, how people engage in the space, what we believe about how we work. Simple things like if you live in the mid-Atlantic region and there's a snowstorm coming, what do you say to people who need to get home? Right? Are we waiting until the university dismisses everyone to go home at 4 or 15? Or do you know because you got people in your space that need to pick up elderly, need to pick up children, just want to not want to be on the road because it's going to be bad weather, do you say, all right, at one o'clock, everybody go? All those things are about, it's like you mentioned, the lived experience that informed how we work. That's what culture is about to me. And, and I will say um, from a practitioner space, I've probably all often had a microculture in every organization where I've been, a different climate than what was traditional across the organization, because I believe in that. The second piece about inclusion, now this is funny, and <laughs> you, I know you put, saw a, a tweet that I made yesterday, but I had to tell this example, because I think this is, this is really critical, I think, in, in really contextualizing what it means to think about inclusion from a leadership perspective and what we need to consider right now and how we need to go forward. So give me a moment for this story. I like talent-based competitive shows, right? So things like Project Runway, all the stuff that comes on, the Food Network, all those cooking competitions. So I watched the episode, I watched two consecutive episodes of this cooking competition show. The premise is there are two people that cook the same dish and they are judged by two additional people who taste the food blindly. So they don't know who made which, right? So in the first episode, there were two 
Anglo-Saxon, right? European descent men cooking. One was British. One is American with Irish heritage. The dish that they made was fish and chips. Easy, simple. Not a lot of layers of flavors. Simple thing to do if you've been, to, if you've been over to UK, you've had fish and chips. The judges, who were both also of European descent, selected. And remember, it's a blind taste test. They both made made their plates, and then the, the judges judged them without knowing who made which. The judges selected the British guy as making the better fish and chips. Sounds pretty reasonable. The immediate episode that followed was the same <laughs> Irish heritage guy going against a black man. The black man is of Jamaican descent who has uh, who is a executive chef and the challenge was to make jerk snapper. So you got a Jamaican black man he in his bag. He should yeah, this this is an Irish over. white man. Now remember, in the first example, they all had sort of the same lineage in culinary. They went to the same type of culinary schools. They were classically changed, classically trained, and cooked in fine dining. So you take that, now you apply it to this Irish American man against a Jamaican who <laughs> is a is an executive chef against somebody who's a restaurateur who specializes in Southwest cuisine. The two judges are of European descent and they select the Irish man is making the better jerk snapper. Now, how is that work? That's exactly. I couldn't believe it. Here, here's why this is important to think about in terms of inclusion and leadership. Because what you see here is the judges and the main competitor all share the same training. Or they have the same understanding and pedigree when it comes to culinary. They went to the same type of schools. They worked in the same type of restaurants. They came up being trained by the same type of people. They were mentored by the same types of chefs and restaurateurs, right? Not the Jamaican guy, right? The Jamaican guy came up in the Caribbean, came to the States as an immigrant, worked his way up, did some things, went to a different style of uh, culinary school, but right, kind of cut his teeth in a different way. So the palate of the Irish American competitor and the European judges is pretty much the same. They understand the same nuances in food. They taste things the same way, right? So all the things that they understand about what should be on a plate are very similar. Now you put that against someone who is from the space, trained in the space, an executive in the space, and come and you put them against three people who understand food the exact same way, and he can't win. That's what happens to us in organizations, right? You bring someone who looks like you, who looks like me, into an organization to lead a space, but everybody who is around you that you're competing with and that controls resources, like in this competition, who controls, who says who wins, they all have the same pedigree. They don't understand your lived experience. They don't understand how you cut your teeth. They don't understand how you view problems. They don't understand the traditions of how you make things work. So how they judge what you do is aligned with their own values 
in the organization and how they came to be in their own careers, which is different than ours. So they'll never see what we do as meritus, right? You can't win the competition because you don't think like us. You don't view the problems like us. You don't solve the issues like us. You don't raise money like us. You don't lead people like us. You don't make transactions happen like us. So we always lose. Man, that's so depressing. <laughs> it is, right? That's I, really like, I would never watch that show again. Oh, yeah, no, I would have I might have broke my TV. That's <laughs> Um, so, okay. So then let's, let's talk about this though. So like, you know, I know like many other black folks in the people leadership org space that folks were emailing you, blowing you up, trying to get, you know, your time, um, oftentimes for, for nothing. Um, and institutions, especially that can afford you, but let me, let me not, let me not rant on your behalf. Um, or, <laughs> You, use you as a point to ramp. But anyway, point is, is that um, <laughs> I'm curious to get your perspective on like when you think about like the leadership profile of like the white corporate ex- executive or the the white middle manager, male, female. Um, like, how would you how would you describe that profile? And as we think about like the the aftermath of George Floyd, we talk about we're in the season of racial reckoning. Like that's been a has been a common phrase like that's been reiterated um, over the last several months. Like, what do you think are some of the core elements and things that need to shift and change? That's a that's a great question. So, what's what's the the common leadership profile, right? So, let's take this same example and sort of apply it going forward. We know that they will most likely come from the same breed, and this isn't necessarily problematic in and of itself, but it's about how the system is designed, right? So you go to a particular type of school where you're trained a certain type of way, and that's the space where the people that were in your community go, the people from your school, the people who played golf with your parents went to a school like that or school or that same school. You're part of the alumni association, right? And your family gives. And so you just, you're brought through that entire culture. And here are the types of jobs that we get and the types of organizations that we work. And so you come into a space as a white person with privilege being exposed to a different caliber of how things work and how we get things done. And and this is interesting because over my career, having mentored multiple people of color who are coming up in the ranks, who have worked in spaces where we've dealt with primarily um, people of color who have been our clients, people of color who have been our coworkers and our peers and organizations run by people of color. And when I've had people leave those spaces and go into predominantly white spaces, they say, it's different over here. It's different because they work differently. They they may work in a different in a different style of efficiency, where someone who looks like me might be in a role where I'm expected in my singular role to manage the responsibilities of three or four different positions. 
particularly if I'm working in a minority-based company, right? But I and then someone who I'm mentoring leaves and takes a director's job in another space, and now they have, and I'm happy people call me and say this, right? The new place where I work has a separate office for every function I used to do in my old role. So they come to our space so our white counterparts come into these places not having to work as hard not that they aren't smart not that they aren't talented not that they don't have lots to bring and share but they haven't worked as hard right back to that lived experience their lived experience of being in the workplace is very different so they don't understand someone like me who works and grinds all the time on multiple projects all the time because my background is that you are always multitasking. That's how you not just get ahead. That's how you stay afloat. You have right. to show that I can put my hands, that I can keep multiple pots burning on the stove and everything still floats. Whereas right. someone who doesn't look like me, who comes from a different pedigree, right, of doing this, they may have only had one role and one responsibility in each organization where they've been. So they don't understand the grind. I, I actually had a, uh, <laughs> I actually had a supervisor once tell me, you are working too hard, right? Mm. Because my lived mm. experience was multitask all the time. Do it, right. get it done. That that person's experience wasn't that. It was, hey, you got, you got this little space that we carve out, you just do this. I'm like, no, there's no way I'm gonna get ahead with that. You'll get right. ahead with that. I won't. You get ahead with that. Yeah. You do exactly. one thing, you'll be fine. I won't be able to do that. In fact, right. not only do I have to do all the other things, but when these issues of race come up and this reckoning comes up, and when I raise it as a concern, what's going to happen is you're also going to ask me to do that work too. Because, exactly. Because your lived experience is, I don't know how to, I don't know what that is. I don't know what they're talking about. I, I can be empathetic and hear it, and I can listen, and I can see that you're troubled, but I don't have a lived experience that identifies with what that means. So you've got to do the work because it's comfortable for you. It's normal for you. There, there's, a, there's, there's a different way. We just show up at work differently all the time. So what needs to happen going forward is <laughs> acknowledging that you don't have to share the, the same lived experience, but do the work to understand what that experience is. And you you may have this experience too. I'm I'm always in meetings where there's lots of pontificating going. People are talking about there's a plan. We're gonna talk about what yeah. we're planning and then what the next plan is gonna be on top of that, and then the plan from that, and then the plan we're gonna write, and you guys are gonna fund this plan, we're gonna have this initiative, but nobody really understands what i'm going through while you're planning and this is true of what we've been dealing with all year right as all these organizations were scrambling to make to increase their diversity to be more inclusive and to write these statements about how we're going to be better in the workplace how what we're going to do how we're going to change our hr policies how we're going to hire new people to be directors of d and i all those things they were doing that without living through the trauma that all of us were going through. Sitting saying, I can't work today because I can't listen to this anymore. Mm -hmm. Because I can't focus because I know that this is happening to multiple people that look like me, multiple people that I know 
while you're planning, right? That we are expected to, even in the midst of our trauma, still do the work while they just get to talk about it. Man, you know, transparently, what has been digging at me is that, you know, I'm looking at this work year, right? This year of at my my nine to five job. And I've been killing it, man. Like <laughs> Lonnie, mm-hmm. no cap. I have been killing it. Um, doing to your point, multi all over the place. And you know, doing more doing more than many, more than most, while also carrying this trauma, right? Carrying this exhaustion, carrying this frustration. And carrying the 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 compounded frustration of seeing other people talk about it and acting as if them talking about it is the same as me as the same as me living it and doing the work and they're not doing they're not not only are they not doing the work they're also of course not living it yeah um let's talk about this let's talk about the intersection of or or the relationship between inclusive leadership power and sponsorship. Mm. Uh, I want to talk about this because, you know, I think right now, at least in the spaces that I I inhabit or that I frequent, you know, it's in vogue to say to have a little token black person that, you know, you say that you're helping. Right. It's in vogue for white folks, white leaders to say, oh, I helped. I, you know, I I forwarded an email to so and so or I patted so and so on the head for a presentation that they did or. You know, I gave so-and-so a, a, a nice little performance review and, you know, that's because because that's me stepping up. That's me being whatever. Um, and it was interesting. I had a conversation with somebody who tried to pat me on the head for some work that I was doing. And I emailed them back and I said, hey, um, are you willing to sponsor me to get promoted? And, and you know, it was interesting how they responded to all my other emails, but they mysteriously <laughs> still have to respond to that. <laughs> Um, and, and so I'm curious to get your perspective on that, right? Like, you know, we, if we've had folks on the the platform before and they've shared things, they've said things like black folks are over mentored and under sponsored. Um, I'm curious to get your, your perspective on just on that, the intersection of power sponsorship and, and inclusive leadership. Oh yeah. I, I, I agree 100%. So I've, I got a few things on this. I, I think from from a researcher perspective, as an academic, there is a data collection method that I like to use. Can't use a lot in, in leadership stuff because it's hard to get people to agree to it, but I like to see it. So, and, it, and it's good for both the research and the practical stuff. I like to see people with power shadow those of us without it. Right. So think about what that's like. Remember, you got somebody who and typically it's the other way around. Right. You want to shadow someone with power because you want to understand what's happening, how they're living. And I've had multiple people over my career shadow me because they want to get to where I am. The way and that's how you learn what the experience is. So I would like to see people with power shadow the people without power. Think of it like what's the show uh, Undercover Boss? Very much like that. Right. Where you get to go in and hear what they get to talk about, what they hear. Read the email. So look at the emails when people send messages to me saying your opinions are irrelevant, right? 
shadow the people without power to understand what's happening, to get a better perspective of their lived experience. So you come out on the other end, right? That that would be a powerful, powerful thing for people in, across organizations. That's something I think that we could do. We could model that pretty easily. You could throw that together pretty easily and say, hey, look at some of these emails where your peers have responded to my questions when then they don't respond to my request for sponsorship. Do that. The other thing that's important, and, and I, <laughs> this happened pretty recently uh, with this, the power structure is that for people of color, so many times it is just so lopsided. And this is, and I, and I say this here, cause this is not even, this is not a secret, right? So, and, and so power structure isn't even a secret, right? Cause we know who are in the positions. You know, I'll say from where I sit and, I, and I'm kind of, I work like you, like I'm a multitasker, kill it all the time. And from an academic space where I sit in a university and I've had this conversation with our senior staff, um, there are nine people above me in positions of power. They're all white. Nine. All the way up. Yep. Nobody in my upline is a person of color. None. So imagine, and so it's different for me from where I am in my career and being academic, so in the academic space. But imagine what that's like for a new person just entering an organization early in their career who's looking for somewhere to go, looking for a path to follow, looking for inspiration. And it's not, again, that the people who are in the upline can't provide that type of guidance, can't volunteer to sponsor, can't help shape someone to grow into their own space of power, but it's pretty damn intimidating to look at that when there's no one that looks like you who controls, who manages resources, right? Who doesn't control any people or who doesn't manage any people and doesn't manage any money. That's really, really hard. And when, when you have that in the organization and those lines are drawn and they're all white, they don't always recognize it. They might come up in your diversity reports but it doesn't mean that, back to what you started this, us out with, is it doesn't mean you understand the lived experiences of the people who are along all those branches within the organization. And so if you don't come to understand how we experience the organization, how people talk to us, how people dismiss us, how people shoot down our ideas, how people take credit for some of our initiatives, all those things. And to your point, how in the space, I am doing the work of multiple people so that I stay on the radar where my colleague and peer who has the exact same credentials and exact same tenure is doing one third of that, right? One third would be fair and sometimes less. One third of that right it's <laughs> always recognized yeah yeah and, and and you know to that end it's like you know it's just it's just it's frustrating man it's frustrating because 
I think, and I, and I, I brought this up um, earlier this season. I was just, you know, we just did like our, well, no, this was, this was the wrap up for, um, for season three. I was, we, we posted it on new year's, but it was the wrap up for 2020. You know, I said, you know, ultimately a lot of these things aren't going to change in this system because it requires a relinquishment of power, right? Like they don't want, they white folks in general, I don't believe want significant representation of black and brown folks who are not going to toe the line because they recognize there's some recognition, even at a visceral level. And I'm not a PhD. So you, you correct me. Okay. I believe there's some recognition, even, even, even subconsciously that that there's a desire to a scarcity mindset around protecting their position. And I think that there's a recognition that if we put, you know, you said there's nine people above you, if half of them, if, if two of them were um, West Indian, um, one, uh, one was uh, ADOS, another was um, uh, East Asian. I feel, and, and they were all genuinely like, they're not, tr- they're, they're actively, focused on representation and equity and all things, the power, the power dynamic would change. And I think there's an, I think, I think, I think people, I don't, I don't think it's as as unconscious as we frame it out to be. You know what I mean? Oh, no, this is not something that people are not aware of, but it's scary. You think of, of any dynamics with any group of people when you have to, if you were faced with giving up power, that is frightening. And it's frightening in all contexts for us. It's frightening in our interpersonal relationships, right? When you think about when a couple comes together, if you've been living single, independent on your own for however many years, and now you are at a wedding, you're giving up some of your power over your own life, right? Because now you have to make concessions and now you have to have discussions about how are resources spent. All of that is is particularly challenging. It's just human nature for us to feel challenged by that. I don't think that it is a black versus white thing. It's not white against people of color. It really is about the vulnerability that comes with relinquishing power. And and that's part of how we've been conditioned to think of power up until this point. If we thought of power how like indigenous communities think of it, that is very much comes from a very inclusive and shared model, right? If we thought of it as everyone brings something that is significant to the table. Everyone contributes based on their gifts and talents. We reward everyone based on those gifts and talents. Our organization flourishes because of those collective gifts and talents. And we see those as unique unto each person. And we recognize that the collective is better than any individual. That's the inclusive mindset around leadership. If we were all trained that way, if we were conditioned that way, if we were mentored that way, if we were sponsored that way, 
this issue of the power dynamic wouldn't exist. But that's not how people come into the workplace, right? It is very much about competition. It's very much about who gets ahead, very much about who controls resources, all those things. So we need to not just unpack, but you sort of need to wipe the slate clean and deprogram people around it. Otherwise, you are, we're creating this, 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 this fight that people have to step into as they battle with their own personal feelings around this. Who am I without power? Like, who am I if I don't run this division? Who am I if I'm not the director of this office? Who am I if I'm not the partner in this consulting firm? Who am I if I'm not the senior vice president? Who am I if I don't have a 3.3 million dollar budget to do these things? All those are the things that people associate with power. But what we understand about leadership is that leadership is behavior, not necessarily position. And so if we recognize and appreciate all the people who were on that ladder to get to that senior executive, the same way we recognize and appreciate the senior executive, then we'd have more inclusive environments that wouldn't suffer from these ills of power struggles. That's an utopia. Do you think that like for that to be the case that we need to also dismantle the systems that we have today though? Like, do you think what you're describing happens in this like capitalistic white supremacist and patriarchal context? Oh, absolutely not. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. Right. That, Cause that's, that's embedded. That's innate in how our country was established. It's, I mean, all that stems back to colonialism, right? So all of that was about power. All the dynasties were about power. So that is embedded in all of our DNA um, from that perspective. So, right, you would have to dismantle. So I would say, so everybody who, that they're making these space trips up to Mars, right? So when we start the new planet, and create new organizations, you can you can plant those seeds there. <laughs> so it's a wrap, it's a wrap for us down here, huh? It's a wrap. Now, like like everything, we're gonna have some some people, some spaces where we see it flourish because of the lived experiences that are shared and that come together to make those. But that's gonna be far and few in between. Right? Some people will get it, some people will get it right. But even in the most inclusive spaces, in the places that are led by the most inclusive professionals, we still have this doctrine of power that people have carried with them for all of their lives that everybody's not going to be able to let go of. And sometimes, even when they want to, they won't be able to let go of. There's some fear associated with that. Right, it's a fear of who of identity associated with it. So it's a really hard thing. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. That's what we see, right? We need people who are disruptors. We need organizations that are disruptors. We need those micro uh, cultures and small climates within organizations. Those office climates that are different than a larger organization. We need those disruptors to say it doesn't have to be that way. We need spaces like this, Zach, like the 
the the platforms that you create to have the conversations about it to begin to build knowledge and to curate information around what does it mean and how do we think to inform how people practice we need that all that's necessary now you put all that in a capsule shoot it up to the moon on that spacex trip and there we go <laughs> oh man lonnie um and i know you said don't call you dr morris i just want to make sure people do know though it's dr morris over here um indeed but, it is all right cool um look we appreciate you have, having you on the show always it's been a dope conversation we got to have you back soon uh and uh man like i pray you take care of yourself this year let's uh you know i'm praying for you just i don't know 2020 was so crazy i'm people talk a lot of people making a bunch of morbid jokes that 2021 gonna be just as bad i'm just like please <laughs> please can't please. take anymore i just need a little break um yeah, yeah, but, but let's let's catch up soon man i appreciate you all right man you take it easy peace Living Corporate is brought to you by The Break Room. Have you ever felt burnt out, depressed, or otherwise exhausted by being one of the onlys at work? You know what I'm talking about. Hosted by black psychologists, psychiatrists, and PhDs, The Break Room is a live weekly web show in the Living Corporate Network that discusses mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. Name another weekly show explicitly focused on mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. I'll wait. This is why you got to check out The Break Room, airing every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on livingcorporate.tv. And we're back. Yo, look, I want to shout out Dr. Lonnie Morris again. Can't thank him enough. I really want to make sure, y'all, that we're doing what we need to do to honor and respect black thought leaders. Right. It's interesting. I was talking to a colleague about um, some culture work um, about and about like the, the, the theories around organizational culture. And they she they showed me their paperwork and their methodology. And I said, hey, I'm curious, like how many black like professionals and thought leaders have you spoke to about this? And they were like, you mean like diversity, equity, and inclusion people? And I said, OK, no, I'm black people do more than just diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm talking about have you spoke to any psychologists have you spoke to any you know educate like phd folks who have background in ethical and cultural considerations or group and team leadership or you know organizational effectiveness have you talked to any like io psych people you know have you like who have you spoke who have you spoken to and I, and I think we forget that you know black academics you know i think i think about the disrespect that dr west has just endured from his tenure being rejected by Harvard, um, it's important that we seek out and really get the perspective and opinion of black folks in the ivory, especially that's a subset of black, that subset of black folks who really care and are passionate about organizational justice and black liberation. Like they exist. It's, there's a whole population of these people. And, you know, we have an opportunity to join them and stand with them in this um in this tradition of speaking truth to power in spaces that are extremely extremely white patriarchal and um, harmful and yet these folks like dr morris are in the trenches doing this work that you know that doesn't get the headlines right like it's not they're not the ones with the high twitter followers or 
a bunch of you know likes on LinkedIn, but they're doing the work. They're doing the thought leadership that gets kind of, you know, glossed over by the folks who we gravitate to. And so I just want to say again, thank you, Dr. Morris. Uh, shout out to you. Shout out to black academics and thought leaders. And uh, listen, if you're hearing this, I appreciate you. If you're looking around and you're not a part of a good fight, you should start one. Who said that? Who said that? Email me at Zach at living corporate.com with where I got that quote from. I got a surprise for you. Anyway, till next time, y'all. Five stars review on Apple Podcasts. Share us with your friends. Do what you need to do. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.